Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. I'm delighted to be joined today by Grant Hackett. Grant joined the Generation Development Group and Generation Life Executive Team in September 2017 and was promoted to become CEO in 2018. Since his appointment, he's overseen very strong growth in sales and profits for the group. With over 15 years of experience in financial services, Grant has held many senior positions across marketing, distribution, and wealth management for Westpac and BT Financial Group. His qualifications include an executive MBA with first-class honors, a diploma of financial services, and he's a graduate of the AICD. Prior to his corporate career, Grant was a multiple Olympic, Commonwealth, and world champion, representing Australia in swimming, and he has held 16 world records. Grant has received the Order of Australia Medal, the Australian Sports Medal, and the Centenary Medal for his achievements, and is a member of the Sports Australia Hall of Fame. So Grant, thanks very much for joining the show. Thanks for having me on, Douglas. Appreciate it. That's, that's good to have you here. And look, um, let's start from the uh, probably the highest point in, in, in your career. And I, I guess I always wonder, is it the, is it the first Olympic gold or, or is it the, the second one where you, where you had some more challenges uh, to, to overcome? Yeah, it's a really good question. I've actually never thought about what is the exact highest point. Uh, I think through my sporting career, potentially winning that first Olympic gold medal had to be it in many respects because it was in front of a home crowd. I was going up against a guy who was my you know, number one rival and hero growing up. I had this guy's times up on my board and then I got to be in a lane beside him and, and actually win my first Olympic individual title. So I think for me, that that was certainly a peak in my career. But yeah, there was a lot of other moments that, that came close to it as well. Yeah. So that, 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 can you just capture that, that moment that you, you touched the, touched the wall? Yeah, I could probably take you through even the last 25 meters of the race. I, I remember I was in lane three. I remember swimming towards the yellow touchpad and I remember putting my head up and this was my dream since I was 13 years old. I made the determination back then that I wanted to be Olympic champion um, and, and go to a home Olympics um, once Sydney won that back in 1993. And so I remember seeing that yellow touchpad and I had this split second thought. I thought, oh my goodness, what happens if someone's in lane eight who I didn't see is <laughs> having the swim of their life? Funnily enough, the guy in lane eight actually uh, ended up finishing, finishing third and breaking the American record. But yeah, I touched that touchpad. It was a little bit surreal because I didn't turn around and look at the main scoreboard. I actually touched it. I looked up at the diving end scoreboard and I just had a look and I just slowly looked across my name and you can probably see it in the footage. And then I saw the number one and the time. And uh, yeah, I just sort of erupted with emotion then because it was a tough week um, for me. I didn't medal in some other events that I was in that I perhaps should have. Um, so to come out and, and finish on top and then to see, you know, Kieran Perkins, who was the you know reigning Olympic champion, world record holder, finish second and swim the fastest time that he'd swum in six years since breaking that world record, just made that that moment absolutely perfect, to be honest. Yeah. Do you have any energy left at that point? I mean, 1,500 meters is a long way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, people here are swimming 1,500 meters and the race itself is so intense. But because you're so fit, you do recover really, really quickly. I think for me, the, the moment that I, I really savoured was when I was in the warm down pool, because as you can imagine, there's thousands and thousands of people everywhere. And I went into the cool down pool just to do a few laps to remove some of the lactic acid from the muscles. And I thought to myself, I just was on my own. I thought, oh my God, I've become Olympic champion. It was, it was a little bit surreal, but I, I really remember that, that moment absolutely clearly because it was just, um, it was like the recognition of a dream coming true. Yeah. And that dream you said was formed many years before. 
a 13 year old boy so maybe let's let's go back there maybe you can describe yourself as a you know young teenager growing up in the gold coast what what what, what would sort of stood out at that point I think for me, standing out at that point was probably my brother more than anything else because he was such a, a gifted athlete. Um, everything he touched seemed to turn to gold. He was a great swimmer. He was actually Kieran Perkins's number one rivals because they were the, the, the same age group. Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, um, you know, he went on to went, finish runner up in the National Ironman and go on and do the Uncle Toby Super Series for eight years. He could run 11.2 for 100 meters in high school. So he was kind of a freak all around. And so, I always admired and looked up to, to, to him. So my first goal in swimming was to, to beat his times <laughs> across some of my events. And as a 13-year-old as a kid, I think I was very naive um, when I made these decisions. Some people might listen to that and think, oh, as a 13-year-old, how do you make the decision to win an Olympics and then put a plan in place, which I did to do so. And it was really simple. I went, well, what's what did the guy through the different age groups do? And I just made those my key milestones or goals for every single age group category through those formative years, and I try to beat those. And look, I had a great time doing it. People say, oh, did you miss out in a childhood because I was, I was world champion at 16 and, you know, traveling overseas all the time. I was like, no way. I had so many great friends in swimming, so many great training partners that for me, I, I just really enjoyed that period of my life. And I, I found it to be more of a privilege than a burden um, through those formative years. So, so a typical day as a 14, 15-year-old, you know, training to be world champion, what, what did that look like? Uh, pretty, pretty ugly what you're about yeah. to hear for most people, I think. <laughs> yeah. I've just said I, I really enjoyed that period, but my, other people might disagree. But I, uh, yeah, I'd get up a quarter to five every single morning. I'd be doing seven to eight kilometers even at that age. I would, I would come home, have a truckload of food, get ready for school. Uh, at that age, I was riding to school. It wasn't too far from home. My parents even moved close to the pool and to the school to make sure everything was close so we didn't have to commute everywhere because we trained so much. Um, and then, you know, went to school, had a normal school day, <clears throat> would come home, eat a truckload of food again, and then go down to the pool, be back in the water by quarter past four, finish by sometimes, you know, seven o'clock, maybe a bit later if I had to do a little bit of gym afterwards. And I'd do that on repeat for the five days and then train on Saturday or compete on the weekend as well. So it, it, it was pretty full on, but I had so many good buddies uh, through those times. You know, sometimes I'd stay over at my friend's house if we we're on school holidays and, you know, wake up and go training together. And yeah, we, we just loved competition. We loved um, trying to better ourselves all the time and push one another. So I think for me, it was probably good. I could have got myself into to trouble through my teen years, I'm sure, but I was really, really focused. It was funny, even when I saw in the, the later teens, you know, friends start to experiment and, and drink and all that sort of stuff. I never did anything like that. And it was really funny. I had no peer pressure because everyone knew I was so committed to the sport that it was just like, <clears throat> Grant's over there. He's doing his own thing. We'll peer pressure everyone else. But I, I never experienced that. I only had support from all my, my school, all my, my training friends. Um, so I was very, very fortunate. So for me, I always reflect on that time in life and I just go, that was awesome. I had some big goals. I was naive to them, so they didn't feel as pressured and, um, and I had good people around me. That's great. And so, I mean, it is important that who, who you have around you, I guess, um, at that point in time when you're trying to aim so high. Big, big time. I mean, you've got to, you don't realize it back then, but there's obviously so many influential people in your life and you spend so much time down at the pool with your coach. So the coach is a critical role. Um, I, I had this amazing year coordinator at school at Merrimack High School. I didn't go to a private school or anything like that. I went to, to a state high school and, and um, Mrs. Wood. So Arlene Wood was her name. And I remember when I was 14, I was sitting in one of the, the sort of, you know, school uh, sort of um, town halls or whatever we had. And, you know, we sing the national anthem each week. So we're 
just there doing that. And we had a speaker come to the school and he was an athlete and you know spoke about his journey. And, and she, I remember, came up to me after that. And when I was only 14 and said, you, you can do that one day. You can, I, and she really meant it. So I had all these like key people in pivotal roles. You know, of course, you got your parents and your brother and family and all that stuff. But there's obviously all these other people, including your training partners, that are so critical to your development. So surrounding by good people that believe in your goals with you is is really important. It's also important to know the people that don't believe in your goals too because I found those really motivating, that people that questioned whether I could do it or not kind of loved that because it was it would spur me on to to give a bit more yeah so you have the the person you really want to show that gold medal to at the, uh, <laughs> at the end of the absolutely. journey absolutely yeah <laughs> there's plenty of knockers along the way <laughs> you, you mentioned the national anthem what what goes through your mind on the, you know in sydney or in athens you know the national anthem's playing you're standing there can you can sort of reflect on that oh it's um it's there's two aspects to that for me. There's one where um, I would finish second behind Ian Thorpe at a major international competition, you know, call it a world championships, Olympics, the Commonwealth Games. And I would, uh, I'd hear the national anthem play and I I almost felt like um, a phony singing it, like I, I, because he was the one who made it play for our country. And I would sing it out of respect for, of course, our country and and we're representing that, but it was it was difficult for me in that. But then, when you got the opportunity to see you put that flag on the pole and, and watch it raise, and you know, represent all the people from your country, it's um, it's a it's a it's a beautiful moment. It's a, it's a moment that you wish you could capture in words and bottle it and all that sort of stuff. But it is only something you can ever experience. And you know, regardless of what people think should be our flag or shouldn't be our flag. It is it, it it is what it is, and it's the the only one that I basically had to to represent. And um, you know, every time you see that go up that flagpole through those moments in your career, it's it's a real sense of pride, and, and you feel like you're representing your country in the best way possible, and, and hopefully doing your fellow citizens proud. Excellent. No, that's that's great. And I mean that that second one, we 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 started from deciding which of these two uh, individual goals was meant more to you, but the second one was quite significant as well because of what you you had to overcome. Yeah, the, the the second one was just arduous and painful and completely, um, yeah, against the the plan. I guess you could say. You know, we all have a strategy, as Mike Tyson says. Everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. So, um, I felt like I got punched in the face in two thousand and four. Uh, I I got pneumonia from overtraining. Uh, I think I wanted it too bad. I had to race with a partially collapsed lung. I had to prepare. You know, when I was in my preparation for those Olympics, I went through 17 courses of antibiotics. I was getting my lungs expressed every single day and coughing up a, a styrofoam cup full of uh, yellow mucus, which is you know, pretty nice to hear for everybody. <laughs> um, but, but for me, it was, you know, I was still absolutely committed to the goal and the outcome. But it was the most painful race, probably emotionally to the lead up, um, definitely the most painful physical race. Um, but to, to achieve that goal was great. But what happened to me was those Olympics on one hand also felt like a serious failure because I basically had two other silver medals by 0.1 of a second or so each. Um, and I wanted, I really wanted three gold medals. That was my goal at the start of that Olympic year was to, to walk away uh, from the Olympics as a triple gold medalist. And you know, a triple medalist is nice and to have an individual goal, but the, the, the pain and the burden of carrying that infection through that time was and and the pressure, I hadn't lost for eight years straight too. So everyone just expected me to rock up and win. And that pressure does, it, it, it accumulates over time. Yeah. So you had a collapsed lung or something. Was there a condition you were carrying as well? 
Yeah. So what what actually happened is when I, when I came back, um, I went under and had a CAT scan. I changed specialist and you know went under this CAT scan. They said there's a massive lump on your lower left lobe, and I'm thinking, wow, I've caused myself some serious problems. I should have never exerted my body for so many months on end with the with this carrying quite a serious infection. And anyway, they injected me with iodine, then put me back under the CAT scan, and then I came out. And I said, please, what what is what is the lump? I was getting quite anxious, and, and they said, oh no no, it's all okay, it's all okay. I said, well, what is it? And they said, well you've been blocked with mucus for, for so long that there's no oxygen actually getting to your lower left lobe. So it's just deflated and it's sitting there in a ball. So it was, it was sitting there in a ball and that's what that big lump was. And so I was getting no oxygen through. So that's why, yeah, the lung was partially collapsed and not getting any oxygen to it. Um, and that's why that race was so painful. <laughs> it answered a lot of questions when, when I um, understood that. It's one thing, you know, coughing up yak and, and, and having this, this infection to carry, but it's another thing to go, wow, my, my, basically my, I guess, total lung capacity was down by anywhere from 20, 25%. Probably not something the uh, the runners up wanted to hear that you'd uh, <laughs> beaten them without being uh, <laughs> fully capable. Uh, it, it was quite funny. The runners runners up that day had the race of their life. I, I think one guy broke the American record by about ten seconds, and the guy who finished third broke the British record by about eleven seconds, and they never swam as fast again. So, I don't think they could have done any more to push me that that day, and um, they certainly gave it their all too. In fact, the guy who got second is quite an amazing individual he went on to be multiple olympic medalist um and he became a navy seal he was the chief and commander of seal team five and then you know graduated uh from stanford uh M- with an mba and now is a very successful businessman so i was racing some serious high achievers out yeah. the other lanes that that certainly wanted to beat me that day excellent okay so you had your two olympic uh two olympic golds you didn't in 1500 you, you didn't win a third was that confronting i mean you, you train probably just as hard and yeah can you maybe talk yeah, through 2008 more confronting in the sense that i i didn't do my best on that day if i actually did my heat swim at those olympic games for the 1500 meter freestyle it would have won by a couple of seconds that final so when you reflect upon it you go i didn't have the right strategy in the final i didn't race it correctly and it cost me a gold medal over silver medal which which i look at that silver medal and i often think to myself even though I'd had 12 years of basically, you know, winning, you know, all, all, all my races bar one, I I'd still learned a big lesson that day. And, and I, I didn't, I just assumed the competition was around me. I didn't look out in lane seven and I didn't realize someone had even broken the field. So I, I, I've never really gotten over that loss and I never will. I've come to terms with that. I actually just learned to live with it. It's, it's one of those things as an athlete who desired the, the outcome so much and put so much work into it and knowing that I didn't do my best on that day. Like I didn't execute my best. So I think if I finished second, I knew everything was done correctly. I did everything right. I could perhaps live with that a little bit more, but I look at, I look at that silver medal and I, I feel a sense of um, uh, disgust is probably the best word to, to articulate my feeling towards that. And I know that kind of shocks a lot of people when they hear an Olympic silver medal, but it's, it's a sense of failure looking at that medal for me. So when you then look at you know the the next few years beyond that were were quite challenging was that was that a factor do you think in um what happened um, next I think for me I mean I retired from the sport after that and look I'm not sure that was a factor I think more broadly as a sports person um there was probably two big transitions in the next sort of 4 or 5 years of my life um that I experienced um one was you've had your identity from the age of 4 in this sport 
And as you come through your teens and you're winning and then eventually you become a world champion, everyone knows you as that person. And you know yourself as that person. You're, you're the swimmer. I still get the call that walking down the street today. You're the swimmer. And it's like, I've actually been in financial services longer than I was on the national swim team. But anyway, you know, and I was on there for 13 years. I was on there for some time. And basically, um, you retire from that. And it, it's a real sense of your identity is gone. Like most people... You know, they do a few sports, they go through primary school, secondary school, then they go to university, experience different things. They go work overseas, they take a gap year. We do none of that. You are locked into this sport from the age of four through to close to the age of 30. And it's what you're known for. It's what you, it's, it's who you are to people that you've never met before. So I think you do lose a sense of identity. So I think that was one transitional aspect. I studied whilst I was swimming and went straight into banking and finance. So I felt like I, I had the career part ticked, which I thought was the only part, but probably not the emotional aspect of that. So I think um, it's like going through a transition, right? People think that retirement will be fun. It's not fun for a lot of people. It's this feeling of loss, loss of purpose, loss of confidence, loss of self-esteem. Like it can come with, a, it's a big loss. And I think for sports people that have achieved at a top level and been a, in it for so long, that is difficult. The The second part of, of that was I, I went through a divorce. You know, I, I probably married very young, but the reality was I, I had two beautiful kids. Um, and that, that divorce was very public. Um, which may, you know, amplifies already the emotional mess of a divorce and the distress that you go through. But the thing that really undid me most in, in all of that emotionally, which I never appreciated, I would, uh, you know, I always thought I was a really tough guy because I was an endurance athlete. I always absorbed pain and I was I was a good competitor and I was mentally tough um, at, at, at most of my competitions. But then missing my children, I didn't know how to manage that. I, I you know, you go through a divorce, you're used to a hectic household, then all of a sudden one day, you're not coming home to anyone. And so I think for me, that was probably where I had lacked emotional maturity or understanding of myself, which which I had to, you know, be taught that lesson to, to probably get to back to where I am today. So the, so the two elements that are probably worth sort of unpairing, the, the identity one, I suspect a lot of, I suspect a lot of people have to deal with um, at various forms. And, and I think, you know, increasingly sport is becoming aware of, making people ready for beyond but i guess you, i guess you were lucky in one sense that you had studied and, and decided there was there was something beyond swimming so that was that yeah. was a big positive there that that definitely i think you could spiral quite a bit and a lot of people have and, and there's been a lot of high profile cases around those sorts of things but i think for me if i'd gone through all of that and probably not had those things that I wanted to put my mind to because I, I loved, you know, the, the intellectual side of what I do I find fascinating. I love learning. Um, you know, I'd, I'd go back and do more study, I'm sure, in time because I just enjoy uh, the challenge of that and finding out sort of, you know, new areas of interest and, and, you know, sort of what that means for me and how I can put that into my life. So I was very, very fortunate that I had a dad that said you retire to something as an athlete, not from it. So retiring to something is really, really important because – um, you know, you need a sense of purpose. So I had that, but I, I probably, because I had that, it probably masked the other side of it, right? Like where you go, if I'm going this and it's actually going really quite well, um, why, why do I feel this sense of loss still? So I think, um, you know, I probably underestimated, pardon me, underestimated um, the impact that that has on you emotionally. I think the transition career-wise was great, but but emotionally probably moving on from that was 
something that you know you, you you don't really know or understand until you go through it. So it's very very. I would say to most athletes, it's very very hard to prepare for. Yeah. So you you you're burning something, and I mean, I I can't imagine the the adrenaline rush. Um, at the end, I can't imagine swimming fifteen hundred meters to start with. So, well, uh, but but the but the but but it was a world of everything is measured to 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 microseconds and 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 everything. I guess there's a finishing line. There's a winner a lot. Everything is very very sort of finite um, in the swimming pool and um, financial services or any or any job is a lot more open ended. So so I'd be interested in like what that what you sort of replace that um if you like clarity with in a, in a world that's a lot more a lot more uncertain how, how does that work yeah I, I think there's probably two aspects to that one is uh i think clarity is really really important in sport or business and it's something that i've tried to take from sport to to your port, point there douglas just around yeah it's clear you're, you're either the winner or the loser you know the time that you have to do or you, you you're not achieving so you know that definition of uh, success and failure is very black and white um in business sometimes it can be extremely gray um you know and, and depending on all the macro factors around you what variables you can and can't control so i've tried to get that strong sense of clarity in business and i try and do that with with the team i lead um so that that is one aspect um but it took me a while to really understand that because it is hard to get that that strong sense of direction and and what is the the top of the mountain that we're trying to climb um the the other aspect to that i think is yeah you just it's just a there's no like touching the wall and having that feeling and so i think i really missed that like who who wouldn't that's that's what you did it for is that real sense of achievement and um you know all that work coming together and and having the opportunity to have a moment like that is pretty special i had to i had to put that to sleep i had to actually go you're not going to feel like that again this career doesn't have those sorts of highs it has a lot of highs and i love what i do now like i really do and and i you have the extremities um, of highs and lows through through anything that you're passionate about but you're not going to have that that probably that physical feeling of winning something that that you know like you would in sport um and all the admiration that really comes with that it's a bit more silent the success in business which a big part of me does like that um more now than ever so yeah so i kind of realized probably a couple of years in is that i'm not going to have that feeling again so you've got to move on from it so it's almost like you've got to have this sense of closure that no career is ever going to be able to replicate the elements of that one and and at the same time i still didn't want to feel like i peaked in life like that was it as well so i was still determined to to move forward and, and try and have that you know feeling of success in, in different areas of life yeah and so so in that in that business world you you look for something different as a as a measure of success or you look for a different a more sustainable high if you like yeah i think um kind of look at it like you're like the corporate athlete now like um i used to train for competitions that would happen probably three times a year um the major ones uh where now you're sort of in a competition every day um so you've got to have that sustained success why the intensity is not great the the sustainability element of it is it's really really important if you want to have any sort of longevity and look we you know i i've been able to learn how to take a lot of those principles from sport into business in terms of you know that success and failure and you know providing clarity to yourself your team i've always got a lot out of seeing other people do well as well and i think that's why i was captain you know of our, our swim team and olympic team because for for me um i always and i never expected this but it's funny when you put 
your time and energy, genuine time and energy into people and you genuinely want to see them do well. And I use the word genuinely on purpose because a lot of people find themselves in leadership positions, but it's more for themselves and the other people. I think it's got to be a, an even balance of both um, <clears throat> because if you're really just there for yourself and you don't want to see people do well, you're not a leader. Um, and so I, I always enjoyed that that element um, of it and seeing people do well. And it's really funny. It, you know, in, in business, people try and stand on each other's heads to get to the, the top of the corporate ladder. It's funny, if you actually try working with people, they'll put you on the, your feet on their hands and push you up. And, and, and that's the way that I've, I've learned that really does work um, if it's working in the right way and it's the right culture. So for, for me in sport, I found that energy came back to you tenfold that you put into other people. So when it came to business, a, a thing that I really love is, is the leadership element to it. I love seeing people do well. I love seeing them grow. I, I really, the, the most special thing to me is I really love it when people do more or achieve more than they thought they were capable of. And you see their confidence grow as an individual. That That to me is like a, a real sign of success. So there's so many other elements to what I do today that give me, you know, huge amounts of satisfaction um, that I that I honestly didn't have the same extent in, in the um, sporting world. But the, the interesting thing with the, the identity question in, in a way is you, you'll always be Grant Hackett, like so everyone has a has an image of that. So so in the in the business world, you know, to what extent does that help and to what extent do you still have to overcome that? It's a good. It's a good question. I remember working um, at Westpac for several years, and someone asking me, who was you know, one of the other forty odd thousand employees at the time, there, "Are you an ambassador? Do you actually work here?" <laughs> yeah. And I was running like three or four different large multi-billion-dollar national portfolios, and we'd really kick some big goals. And so, you know, it's a it's a really um, interesting element to to what I have to deal with. I've I've always said. Having the background of sport and the success the success of that actually opens the door. But once you're in there, you actually have to prove yourself twice as much because people think, oh, you're just that or you're just this. You know, they've got this stereotype and they've kind of pigeon, pigeonholed you um, into to their own narrative. So it, it, it comes with a lot of um, great elements to it um, and people have high expectations on things when they see you just because they think you've achieved in one aspect, thinks you think you can transfer that in, into something else. But I don't, I don't mind that as well because I sort of think, you know, pressure is a privilege is, is one of the sayings that I like to live by. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's really interesting when people meet you and I don't associate my identity with swimming or sport anymore. And I've obviously moved on from that. But, but like I said, most other people do. Um, and, and at the end of the day, I think I've gotten to the point where I'm going, you know what? I should feel proud of that instead of looking at it like that's not me anymore and, and almost feeling not upset by it, but almost going, oh, what, why, why am I that? I'm, I'm a bit more than that. But I've gone, you know what? That, that's actually a, something I should be proud of. You know, that's, that's people kind of, you know, looking up to you to, to some extent that have admired what you've been able to achieve in that sense. And then, you know, people always ask, well, what are you doing now? What are you up to now? And I sort of say, and they always get a surprise because they think you're just off doing commentary or speaking, you know, sort of gigs here and there. So so for me, I, I think I've just navigated my way through that and found it more of a, a positive aspect to it. But there were certainly plenty of ups and downs along the way and things that I experienced that I didn't really enjoy to, to be totally honest, coming in with the, the athlete tag. A lot of the time I wish it was was gone, but now I've just gone. I've, I think I roll with it a little bit more now. Yeah. I mean, we, we first met in, in a professional capacity. You were you were presenting on behalf of your firm. You were certainly not not presenting as as the athlete. It was definitely a, a sort of professional um, interaction. So that was how I, I I was introduced to you. Um, that, that first um, 
so the, the the challenges you talked about, um, and and there was the divorce, and then and the sort of not being able to see the kids. And I think, um, you know, we probably can't give advice to people on on how not to get divorced, but we perhaps perhaps there's perhaps there's something we could we could sort of draw out about the, I guess the emotional impact, and particularly what you said about about detachment from kids, and may, maybe there's just something you learned through that period that you think other people may may sort of benefit from hearing. Oh, the, the biggest thing that I think I learned through that is you're not alone. There are so many people that go through similar situations. Um, because mine was obviously made public, you know, sort of going back a decade or so ago, um, a lot of people came up to me and, and told me about their, their stories of, of going through that situation. It was really eye-opening. In many respects, some of the stories that I heard, I felt very fortunate. So it gave me a sense of gratitude. So it was probably, that was the nice part to it. The difficult um, part was I, um, uh, for, for me, I, I had to do a lot of get work to, to get to this place, but I, I couldn't ask for help, I, um, which, which I, because I thought everyone expected so much of me um, most of my life. And basically, you know, I was in a situation where I was, you know, emotionally distressed, finding it really challenging, uh, not feeling like myself, um, missing my kids, which were the most important, obviously still are a thing to me in my world. Um, and not knowing how to have the emotional tools to effectively deal with it. And so for me, because I did have a profile and because things were public, it made me less inclined to talk about it with people. Um, so I think for me, it's sort of festering inside when you're not dealing with those emotions and there's only so much you can compartmentalize, which I could do really well, but probably years of it was was really challenging. And it wasn't until... I sat down and spoke to someone and, and they said, oh, I know what you lack. And I was like, oh, give me the, give me the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they said, simple, it's just vulnerability. You, you have an inability to be vulnerable. And I was like, yeah, I've, I've, I've put up walls. And as soon as I see it creeping out of the walls, I'll put up another wall outside of that. So I think for me, it was that conversation was one of the most eye-opening elements to my entire life. And, and it actually gave me a license to, to ask for help, to talk through all those things that I was experiencing, you know, deep down inside effectively, and then um, actually have some tools to, to deal with them. And it was funny, even just talking about them was like removing 50 or 60% of the burden of all of that that I'd carried for, for quite some time. And then, you know, since that point in my life, I have practiced vulnerability. I practice it with my wife when I need to. Um, I now understand that talking about things and being open and honest is actually a sign of strength not weakness, but it, it, I was very much of the opposite mindset mindset. Um, and my situation amplified that as well. So, yeah, so I think, um, you know, I've, I've actually become, you know, a better person, probably a better father, a better partner, um, in, in doing all of that. And I think I'm, and I, and I just feel so much better in within myself. <laughs> so it's, it's weird the, the, the sort of snowball effect once you kind of get on something that is really a big hurdle or challenge for you in your life, which we all have. Um, but it's really funny. I would have never had that personal growth and development unless I went through that really, really hard situation. So as much as I always looked back on that, think, oh, God, I can't believe I went through all of that and came out the other side. I'm like, it's the best thing for me because it actually made me a more well-rounded human being rather than being this guy who was this athlete living inside a bubble for over two decades, um, really. So, yeah, so so I can't. I can't look back on it and, and frown so much. I have to look back on it and see what came of it. And, and I feel like those rewards that I've got now and where life is at is, is I'm very, very fortunate. So you were, I mean, in many ways, I suspect, trained not to show vulnerability in the pool. So like, like for, most, for most 
you know, men have vulnerability is hard, but for you, probably doubly hard given given that profile. Yeah, no, I want to. It's such a good point, Douglas, because everything I was ever taught, right? Like when I was sick in two thousand and four overcome it find a way you know when you're injured overcome it do the rehab find a way um you know it's it's a hard morning of training don't complain about it focus on what you need to and get the job done i was taking that exact mindset into a highly emotive situation and it was doing the complete opposite instead of helping me it was hurting me so yeah it's, it's actually a really important point so when you then say practicing vulnerability you know what what what, what that must mean for you um is that is it something that, that that others could could benefit just from from hearing? What what do you mean by practicing vulnerability? Yeah, look, you, I think um, you know I'm conscious. You, you don't be vulnerable around sharks, right? You don't bleed around sharks. So you've got to know who, what, when to to be vulnerable. It's not this thing where you walk into your boss's office every Monday morning and spill your guts. Like I, I think there's there's appropriateness around it first and foremost. And so I think it's important to to frame the context of things. Um, you've got to know. How are you going emotionally? You've got to be able to have the ability to be able to check in with yourself. I think that's really, really important. So I kind of start there. Then I talk to, you know, my what I call my top three people. Um, you know, I'm not going to sit here and go through through all of those, but obviously my, my wife is, she's a phenomenal person. She knows me, she understands me, and she truly loves me. And so that sort of connection that I have there and, the, you know, the conversations I am now able to have with, um, you know, someone like her is, um, hugely powerful and it's amazing how if you could do that in the right setting with the right people that have got your back how much that can shift the difficult stuff and and i feel now like kind of all of those difficult situations i've been through i can actually absorb so much more emotionally now and now that i understand myself a lot more and, and how i can remove you know the, the, the difficult side of all of that um you know, it's it's sort of prepared me a lot more for what you'd call battle. You know, we're, you know, going in and trying to achieve things that are difficult and challenging. So, for me, that those um, lessons have just been so mind blowing. And and I realised something um, throughout that journey is if you're going after big goals or you're trying to attain things that you know are unattainable to to most people, there's going to be the greater the good with that, but there's going to be the greater the bad with it also. And, you know, it's it's almost, it's like gambling with your emotions. You know, if you're going to put a big bet on, you're either going to win big or you're going to lose big. And 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 that's, I kind of got to understand that of, as part of that overall journey as well. So, and and now I know if, if I do lose big, you know, it's it's not all over. Yes. Yeah. There, there, there is a next step and, and I feel like I know how to deal with that. Yeah. In order to practice vulnerability, do you have to do both sides? I mean, do you have to, I guess be there for others as well or is it, is it sort of still something oh, that's a little of bit course. selfish? Yeah. Oh, of course. No, I, I don't feel that it's something that needs to be selfish. Yeah. Maybe if you're in a professional context, um, you know, you're talking to somebody who's trained like a psychologist or a psychiatrist, I'm sure in that situation it's, it's definitely one-sided. Um, I, I think, you know, you've got to have room for other people, most certainly. It's no good you putting your stuff on someone else but not giving them the ability to, to do it back. And that's why I always say your top three people, they've got to be the right person. And that that relationship, I feel like, needs to be reciprocal. Be but and, and and also, it's not one of those situations where if they're bringing up the challenges that they have, that you dump your challenges um, back on them. You know, you've got to you've got to know when you need to be there for, for someone. Find that would I would I would hate to be that that sort of person. Yeah, to, to yeah. So your your top three becomes uh, you're probably in their top three. You're in they're in your top three. Okay. So, yeah, but but that creates a closer bond between the two of you, right? Like the more you know about each other, the more you can connect, or the more you can appreciate why someone is the way they they are too. So I think it actually creates a, a much 
deeper sense of connection with another person if you're able to have that sort of reciprocal relationship and have as you know stronger ears as you do now. Yeah. So I want to I want to just finish by by focusing on you know what it is you do in a corporate sense and you know if if you if you do the timeline, um, you were hired into the role Generation Life not that long after you were probably in the in the lowest point in your public persona. So um, that that sort of fascinates me in a way that 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 you know you you took on such a such a big role at a time when you were probably sort of still dealing with a lot so I'm, I'm really interested in in just in that in the appointment in a way and then and then what you've done um, for the firm and you know what's going forward yeah so it's it's quite funny so I'd, you know obviously been you know had the success of sport <clears throat> moved in had quite a successful corporate career went through that difficult situation and then yeah ended up at um, generation life or generation development group which is a, a listed entity um, but it was funny. It was actually at the best point because I'd been through um, all those difficult phases and that um, story that I sort of just went through around the vulnerability and the conversation I'd had. I'd had that just a few months be- be- before that. So I actually felt like I probably gained the most at that through that period in the months leading up to taking on that role because I because I've been through the difficult situation and I just wanted to um, really um, understand myself and what made me tick because. I'm not a person that sits there and, you know, wants to do things that go against my grain or, you know, you know, no one wants to go through bad, difficult, emotional times and, and feel crappy or depressed, but we go through them. We, we're human beings. And some of us, like myself, have to go through those publicly, um, unfortunately. And so after doing that, you know, I sort of did the work on myself. I understood myself a lot more. I really grew emotionally around that. And, and it was actually a great period to go into something because, I felt like I was this more evened person. You know, I sort of had all the the successes and training of knowing how to, I guess, achieve um, in different environments, but uh, hadn't really had the emotional maturity that I would have liked or probably some other people got the opportunity to if they were outside of that sporting bubble as part of their personal development. So I kind of had, had balanced things up a little bit more. So then going into that role, I was actually so happy, even though maybe the year before people saw that, you know, I've been through a really difficult public situation. I was actually so happy. I was so happy in my life. Um, you know, I had uh, good relationships all around me. I felt comfortable in my own skin. I felt like I got an opportunity with a great business with a bunch of great people, and I felt like we could hit the ball out of the park. And and we kind of we kind of did that as a team. And yeah, so it felt really fulfilling. So yeah, as much as it's almost like after your biggest failures become your biggest successes, right? That's that's kind of the way that life works sometimes because sometimes you need to dive into those failures and understand them to make sure that you, you do it right moving forward. Yeah. And things are going well for you today at uh, Generation. Yeah, we've, we've had a great, like our last five or six years, you know, I think we've had CAGAR growth um, about 46% um, over the last sort of five years. We've grown our farm at that time. It sort of took about 13 and a half years to get to about 694 million. Today, we're, you know, just a few years later, well over 2 billion. Uh, we bought a, a, another business, which is, you know, grown from assets under management from there about 659 million just two years ago to $6.4 billion today. Um, so yeah, the, the, the businesses overall have, have really, um, you know, sort of exceeded expectations, you could say. But more than that, we, we set ourselves some really clear goals. We really celebrate those goals as a team. And um, we've grown as a business. We've grown literally, you know, four or five fold in terms of staff as well. So 
um, that's been a, a really fun journey. And um, yeah, I want to continue to do that, continue to set big goals um, and continue to try and achieve that with the people around me. So I very, feel very, very fortunate and grateful to, to be doing what I'm doing and, and doing it with the people that I am too. Well, it sounds great. I mean, from a from a thirteen year old boy, you know, wanting to win an Olympic gold, to it sounds like you're um, making great progress as a corporate athlete as well. So, you know, Grant, thank you for for joining us. Thanks for sharing your story, and um, you know, thank you for being vulnerable. Appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me on, Douglas. Appreciate it. Good chat. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.